today we are putting on the whole armor. What armor, you may ask? It's the most important armor. It's the plot armor. Plot armor It is why you love the big twists and the big turns. And when the plot thickens that you feel it so much because your characters and the story has plot armor. Which characters had the best plot armor? We are going to go through the biggest twist and turns in the history of comics. I'll give you my top lists and we will see who exactly wore the plot armor the best. Who wore it best when it mattered the most on an all new episode of Observations. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. Thank you for joining me on yet another adventure where we uh, examine comic books, pop culture, and everything in between. And there is so much in between, right? There is so much. Today, we are getting right down to, to, to our, 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 our topic of the plot thickens, do the twist, the biggest twists in comics, and, and the benefit of a term you're going to come to know and love called plot armor. Maybe you've not heard of it before, but plot armor. And uh, you're going to see how that has affected and influenced so many of the big twists, the big turns, and the uh, big uh, plot plot thickens aspects of your favorite stories. First, foremost, I'm going to take you back to uh, when I discovered all this between the ages of 9 to 12. And there is nothing I love discussing more. Nothing I, I, I love discussing more than, than the late 70s, like 1976 to 1980, when I am ages, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12. And that is my absolute, absolute favorite time. 1977, Summer Star Wars, I could talk about until uh, uh, the, the cows come home, until you're blue in the face, I could, until you pass out, all of the above. Look, it, it is one of my favorite times ever. And I've covered it many times. And you're like, we know, we know you are obsessed. I, I am very grateful that I'm a first adopter to, to the Star Wars um, phenomenon. But that summer obviously was a big deal. And Star Wars was a big deal. But we're going to examine very specifically uh, how 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 the perception of a character. I, I think this is probably the best uh, example of how to explain the importance of plot armor, and then you'll understand what the what plot armor means. And and clearly, the earliest implication is this this character is protected by an armor of the plot that you don't know, but that's built in, that's baked in, that you're going to discover eventually. So coming out of Star Wars. When I was a kid, I just uh, so 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 I, I've told you my senses were overwhelmed by the special effects, the scope, the the the, the, the opening when they're, when they're chasing that rebel ship and that that star destroyer. You watch it now and it doesn't feel as long to you in the theater, middle row, I mean mi- middle of the theater, you know, l- little head on little body, 9-year-old life looking up, that that star destroyer going over the head as it closes in on the rebel ship is just, it felt like it took 10 minutes, okay? And uh, then, of course, the droids, you know, are given the information, R2-D2 is given the information by Leah after the dramatic arrival, presence, giant, epic shot of Darth Vader. The droids land, they go on Tatooine, they meet, you know, Luke Skywalker. I've talked so many times about how Obi-Wan invoked 
all of the prophets of the Bible that I had grown up uh, being exposed to uh, growing up, the, the son of a Baptist minister. He looked like Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, Isaiah, all those books of the Bible. He looked, I was like, Obi-Wan looks like he walked out of the Ten Commandments. I mean, again, a, a movie that we watched every Easter at the house. So I'm like, looks like he swapped out some robes from the extras uh, that Cecil B. DeMille or Cecil, forgive me, Cecil, Cecil, uh, uh, you know, uh, when he was doing the Ten Commandments. And I was immediately probably because of Obi-Wan and because of his story and because of the story that he tells to Luke Skywalker, which is part of the building of Luke Skywalker's plot armor. Let me tell you of your father, you know, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to butcher Alec Guinness. I wasn't prepared to. So immediately backing off. But when he says, you know, your father was killed by Darth Vader and, you know, you're, 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 you're watching that story and you're just totally taken up by it. And oh my gosh, Luke has this legacy. And then, of course, we fast forward through all the adventures, meeting Han Solo, which is actually a very important moment because it's the most important moment that I can share with you, that this is why I'm telling you the Star Wars story. So you're already four minutes in and I'm, 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 I'm starting to connect the dots, okay? It's not going to take a long time. So Han Solo had the swagger. He was the cowboy in the cantina. That's where the movie pivots and becomes a Western. And you're like, wait, this is like, you know, the cowboy shows I grew up with. And, 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 and for those of you who are way younger than I am, and there's a lot of you, because I am definitely old man Liefeld. Look, growing up, my earliest memories on primetime television are Bonanza, are Big Valley, are Gunsmoke. These are, these are in their first runs, wrapping up their first runs, okay? Alias Smith & Jones I've talked about was, was wrapping up its run when I was a kid. We watched it, you know, in, in its entirety originally because it was a 19 you know 72 73 74 75 show so i mean like i could i could watch that and uh i loved it it was a tv version of butch cassidy and the sundance kid that movie was on regularly you know twice a year on television not cabled on the networks the abc sunday night movie the cbs friday night movie whatever cowboys 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 all of the Clint Eastwood movies were cowboys at that time. He was just beginning to, to do the Dirty Harry stuff. But he had been the outlaw Josie Wales. He'd been in the good, bad, and the ugly. I mean, you guys, he was, Clint Eastwood was really known to everybody. And, you know, he was on a show, I believe, I believe it was Rawhide, but he started, he started on a, as a cowboy, like so many of them did, like so many of them did. The $6 million man was a cowboy. He also had Little House on the Prairie. Yeah, I mean, you name it. You got Rifleman. Rifleman was in heavy-duty repeats, and uh, it's a guy named Chuck Connors, and it was the most explosive opening I'd ever seen. He's just literally cocking his rifle and firing it, walking down a street shooting people. Rifleman starring Chuck Connors. So Cowboys were the big deal you can you can you've, you've you've seen interviews with spielberg and scorsese where they've talked about how they believe superheroes are the cowboys the westerns of their day that's what they're talking about is the proliferation i mean literally every network had many many cowboys westerns then they pivoted to like giant miniseries how the west was one starring james arness who was the star of 21 20 seasons whatever it was of of gunsmoke and and then there was Centennial, which was a Western that aired on Channel 4. These were big event-driven Westerns. And so Westerns were everywhere. So when you see George Lucas embrace the Western, we're, we are in a cantina. Boom, click. We're in a Western. When The Mandalorian, season one, I immediately go, was like, 
John Favreau is my age. He grew up on the same Western. Some of the Mandalorians are literally episodes of Gunsmoke, Bonanza, Big Valley. There's only like six of these plots. They just recycle them. But Gunslinger comes to town, solves problems, saves town, gets, you know, girl out of trouble, guy out of trouble, you know, proves proves innocence of wronged person. The Mandalorian is a space Western based on all of those shows that I just, you know, tossed together in my word salad. So when you saw Han Solo, Han Solo, and you saw Chewbacca, and you saw the canteen, you're like, and he's got his his pistol down low like a gunslinger. You're like, holy crap, it's a cowboy movie now. So, so I got my <clears throat> Obi Wan is like the old prophet, but he talks about Jedi Knights, and then I've told you this before, Darth, Darth Vader is like a, a a super dark samurai, and and then and then you've got Luke the the lung the, the young protege learner. Well, we come out of Star Wars. And I kid you not. Now, I was super, ridiculously, overwhelmingly blessed as a child to have on my corner when I moved, when I was nine, when we left Broadway and Magnolia and that just holy trio of liquor stores, Skater Brothers and 7-Eleven. But then I would inherit a new, like even greater trio in Foodland, Utotem, and, uh, and, and, and another market. I mean, I was like, oh, more comics within walking distance. But that neighborhood had two mics. I live. I had a mic who was ten years old, one year older than me, across the street. I had a mic next to me with the big, mean German Shepherd. That's how I met him. And then on the corner was Craig. And then there was Mondo and Eddie. Right? Okay. Pivoting just to the right of my house. I was in kid heaven. Kid heaven. I had kids all my same age. We were all eight, nine, or 10. We were all within that suite, you know, where we could relate. We all had bikes. We'd bike around, especially summertime. We moved into our new house in May. So I was settled in there when Star Wars came out. So I experienced it with these guys. So we had what we'd call adventure time. There was no, uh, you know, there wasn't even those like little electronic football machines. Some of you guys had them where you'd try and score them. Lean, lean, lean. Okay. We didn't, those weren't even out yet. Whoever put those out, little handheld, you know, football, you'd make the right moves and then you'd go forward, 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 forward and and score the touchdown. Handheld electronics hadn't made it really. Uh, Video games, there was Pong. There was Pong at the pizza parlor. Okay. There there was like uh, the the beginning of like a Tetris type game. Space Invaders was still post Star Wars. It was still a couple of years off. Asteroids, all that stuff was yet to come. Our, you know, lining up and putting quarters on arcade games had not yet come. So we had adventure time. We had adventure time in the streets. And we were all great friends. The two Mikes, Mondo, Craig, and Eddie, and Rob. Okay, so we were just a posse. We'd all seen Star Wars. We would routinely, in our adventure time, pick who we were all going to be. And I, from the very first time, I'm like, wow, I'm going to have to really work hard and, 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 and stand up to get my pick because there is no way I'm not playing Luke Skywalker. I'm playing Luke Skywalker. No, my son is not named after Luke Skywalker. It's a biblical name. Come on. Luke is a book of the Bible. Don't go there. So just just as that crosses your mind, I'm, I'm, I'm coming back. I had to be Luke Skywalker. Well, here's, here's, here's the deal, audience. I had no problem being Luke Skywalker. Everyone and their mother wanted to be Han Solo. The battle was between the two mics, Eddie, Craig, and Mondo to be Han Solo. 
I want to be Hanzo. I want to be Hanzo. I want to be Hanzo. What? I'm like, I want to be Luke Skywalker. He shot the freaking Death Star. But again, remember, Han Solo is super cool. Takes, you know, when they land, takes charge. Uh, when they land in the Death, in the Death when, when they when they go to the Death Star and they're they're boarded and they take over the you know control room and and throw everybody off as as Luke tries to go locate Leah in the, in the cells and and you know he's the one having the funny banter back and forth he finally you know shows this is a bad conversation blast the console he's the one running down the hallway shooting at people he's got the cool you know iconic one leg up on the ramp one arm extended shooting the stormtroopers he's the pilot of the millennium falcon he comes out of nowhere if you've never seen star wars you're being spoiled sorry i think it's Plenty of time, 40 plus years, I can spoil this now. He comes out to knock Vader's ship. Boom! That was one in a million, kid. And it's like, Luke couldn't have done it without Han. Much to my shock, Han was the far more popular character with all of my friends. I was the sole Luke Jedi guy. Only me and my other buddy, Mike, were um, uh, reading the Star Wars comic books. And I think, you know, based on... The data that they had, what was the first storyline that came out of the Star Wars comic books? They did the six-issue adaptation, which, as we've covered, and I've done dedicated um, first season, d- dedicated first season podcast episodes of this. You should you should um, check it out. It's it's uh, basically you know how licensing saved Marvel and took them from bleeding red into fully in the black and profits and probably the money to, you know, create all the comic books that we loved with Frank Miller and Walt Simonson and John Byrne and so on and so forth. Star Wars was a complete game changer. Listen to that episode. It will entertain you. I I read Stan's view of things, the editor-in-chief at the Times view of things, Lucasfilm's view of things, the Lucasfilm licensing. You'll, You'll find out really what a game changer that it was for Marvel Comics. But after they did the first six-issue adaptation, which they did in a normal monthly comic book release, then they had a magazine, then they had two treasury editions, and they combined the treasury editions. So when I tell you that Marvel went to town, went to town, and those treasury editions were $2, $2.50, they were expensive. They were really making some coin. What's the first, what's, what's Star Wars number seven? What's the first story coming out of the Star Wars saga now that they're going to tell their own stories? And this is not the same Lucasfilm with all their heavy restrictions they're discovering what they're going to restrict down the line and eventually we we learned that they had to protect a lot of the luke skywalker stuff because that is where the plot armor was built in but the issue seven eight nine ten eleven are uh han solo han solo driven story they, they basically redid seven samurai which you know is the magnificent seven the magnificent seven redid Seven Samurai, now they're doing the Magnificent Seven with Han Solo as a cowboy and Chewbacca, and they are recruiting a group of gunslingers, warriors, to, you know, battle against this uh, evil warlord. And even on the covers, Han is very much, again, depicted as the gunslinger. Han roared out of uh, Star Wars as, from from my perspective, in my neighborhood, in my, at my school, at my junior high, because it extended beyond when we went back to school in the fall, everybody had seen Star Wars and, and the kids at church or the kids at school. Again, Han Solo was the power. I mean, he was the the most influential guy. And again, when in 1978, they did Battlestar Galactica with a bunch of the Star Wars crew and they launched that on ABC. There was an article in a, in a magazine called Dynamite. Dynamite was a magazine I never missed. Dynamite was such a great, like, 
kids fan pop culture magazine. It was literally what what Wizard should have been. Way cooler, better, more awesome than Wizard without all the bile and the and the built-in bias and the angry uh fanboy sadness that Wizard had. Uh Dynamite had a drawing of Han Solo next to a drawing of Starbuck, who was played by Dirk Benedict and was the breakout character on Battlestar Galactica. Same thing, gunslinger, cart poker player, you know, cowboy Literally, like literally, Starbuck was the Han Solo of Battlestar Galactica. Han was having a more, more resonance into the next projects. Remember how I say, like, this movie didn't unlock the green light to do more of these. You can see when something is influential. You can see it. Han Solo begat Starbuck on Battlestar Galactica in the same way that Star Wars begat Battlestar Galactica. But there was no Luke Skywalker on Battlestar Galactica. There was no Obi Wan Kenobi, and the most the the the, the you know. Most direct line between the two was Han Solo and Starbuck. Now you can say, oh, well, Harrison Ford was more charismatic than Mark Hamill. Look, I'm not going to argue that Harrison is not great in that role. But in the immediacy of 1977, you know, of the people that get the medals, Han was the more popular one. But then things changed. And let me tell you something. Coming out of The Empire Strikes Back three years later, it all changed. That movie, Han is running around like a lovesick puppy you know, wondering if Leah loves him back and then eventually, you know, being betrayed by his friend and being put in carbonite while Luke goes through the training and ascends to a level of war- Jedi warrior that no one sees coming and has that most badass, far superior lightsaber battle that, that in the whole, in, in, in the original trilogy, the best lightsaber battle is in The Empire Strikes Back where he goes up against Vader and uh, as Vader's trying to lure him in, get, get you know, get him put in carbonite and when he utters that big other again big spoiler big spoiler 40 43 years in the making uh when he says i am your father luke boom luke stock shoots through the shoots through the roof no longer is han solo the most popular character in the franchise he is certainly super popular i don't believe his popular got dented one one bit i am not for one minute telling you that han's success went down I'm telling you that Luke's skyrocketed because he was wearing the more valuable plot armor. Now you can say, look, George didn't know that when he started. Not here for that. That's another episode entirely. That's a rabbit hole, a deep dive a, a that, that is not going to be discussed here. Let's deal with the results. Whether George Lucas had something figured out prior to or whether he figured it out after the match, I, I, don't, I don't care. That What I'm dealing with is the results is that Luke had a prophecy uh, put forth to him by Obi-Wan and that he could continue the Jedi, you know, training and uh, pick up where his father had left off before he was murdered by Darth Vader. Obviously, Darth benefits from the plot armor as well. But Luke was the big beneficiary because now he was even more important. What? What? Luke is Vader's son? Vader is Luke's father? Just mic drop moment of all time in in pop culture you know uh at, at large i mean more so than just sci-fi and sci-fi fantasy i mean this is a pop culture gigantic moment and that is where the plot armor becomes the most formidable and you're like wow you and i didn't know when we bought a ticket and we sat down unless we were spoiled at the, at the, at the bookstore like i did a week before and i picked up the marvel comic that shipped early fact complete fact it shipped it was out and you could read it in comic book form in the paperback 
uh, tr- uh, they, they, they put the comic book in a little uh, pocketbook, a little 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 handheld pocketbook, and it was in the bookstores, and it it, it shipped early, and so there were people. Um, so, but but up until that point, I didn't know, but I did know before I went and sat down, guilty as charged, didn't know when I read the comic. I was like, "What? He's his father!" And then, of course, I just wanted to see if it was true. Did, is this Marvel adaptation? I, I'm using, you know, the metal capacity of as bright as I can possibly muster at 11 years old, 12 years old. But wow, like wow. So so then I go and I see this movie, and you can just see the the the, the indications and the ramifications and and the. Uh, the importance of Luke is now completely ensconced. Like, like Han is a great character. He's super popular. He's that cowboy. But Luke is the chosen. He's the one. He's the guy that all the eyes are on. And he now has a direct tie to Darth Vader, who we thought was this badass Sith Lord, this badass, you know, um, servant of the Emperor and 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 uh, master of 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 the Dark Force. But boom. Now, Luke is the guy. He is Vader's son. They are family. How will this all play out? Boom. Plot, armor, success achieved. And Luke skyrocketed. Absolutely skyrocketed in popularity as a result. There is no greater example that I'm going to give you today. I I can think of maybe one, but it's not on a cultural level. It's, It's on a comic book level. That is a grade a level plot twist that is a super duper like the plot thickens you know moment that that i i just i can't think of one bigger in my life i like literally it and i've been a i've been around a while who shot jr is not up there and if you're like what who is jr is that jr jr no he was a character in a giant nighttime soap and and you had to come back after a writer's strike delayed season to find out who it, it was like a you know some of the stuff became like murder she wrote who done it you know and uh, and and but luke uh suddenly was more important than you could have ever possibly anticipated also very important to note that i am no longer when empire strikes back coming out you know gathering in the seat to have adventure time with my friends we've all we're all kissing 12 and 13 now and we're getting older and as a matter of fact you know in in the midfall of 1980 is when I sold all of my original Star Wars, three years worth of Star Wars figures, because I was, quote unquote, growing up in, uh, you know, I didn't stop collecting comics, but I certainly uh, put on my table, and I may have shared this before on the on the show, and I'm, I'm not sure, but I got several hundreds of dollars from a guy who was walking by and wanted to buy all of them at the same time, and I took with my parents, and I thought that was a good deal, and then now I realize that each and every one of those figures is you know, 500, 600, thousands of dollars. I mean, we're, we're talking the original Dubak, the original, uh, you know, TIE fighters, um, X-wing fighters, Y, Y-wing fighters, uh, the original land speeder, the original Luke Boba Fett through the mail, all that stuff. Uh, I mean, it was like, once I got Boba Fett in the mail, you know, a good year before empire strikes back, I, 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 it was like my apex. I didn't buy a whole lot of the empire strikes back toys. I could tell my, 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 my fever wasn't in the action figure department anymore. And I had been doing action figures when they were called dolls put out by Mego, whether it was Star Trek or Planet of the Apes or the superheroes. So I'd been doing this for many, many years and I decided to kind of backtrack and, and get out of it. And I had this, you know, yard sale where I erected two, two, you know, card tables, put all of the figures out individually right in front of my house. It was a Saturday afternoon. Boom. Immediate sell. Couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe I got, I'm, I'm going to say I got 
$250, $300. It, it, it was, wasn't less than, wasn't more than that. And I, I, I was rich. Oh my gosh. And, and, you know, obviously I had to check with my parents because a lot of that stuff was gifts, stuff they bought for me for birthdays and Christmases. But so I was transitioning out of that. So there's no way that I was meeting with my other friends. We were all starting to discover one, two, three girls. Yes, we like girls. We loved um, loved the ladies as as young men, and and it was time to start saving up for you know bracelets to to tell the girl that I had a crush on that will you know will you go steady with me? And I, I heard someone on Saved by the Bell today. Don't even give me a hard time that I was watching Saved by the Bell. You guys know my my sister in law is on it, so when her episodes come up on the weekends, I always watch um, Joy's sister play Tori. And, uh, and so they were mentioning about going steady today and I laughed out loud. I'm like, would anyone now even know what go steady means? I mean, this is now a, a 30 year old, um, uh, phrase. I think at, 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 at the earliest, I mean, I, I haven't heard anyone say it. I don't, I don't think my kids would understand if I said go steady, but we were certainly not gathering the streets, uh, prior to empire. So this is after empire comes back. I see it when it comes out that may, but by October I'm selling my stuff. We're no longer gathering, but I can pretty much tell you that the entirety of the culture had now pivoted towards Luke. But 1977, Hank, uh, Hank, I have now changed Han Solo to Hank Solo. That'd be great <laughs> in future installments. Like Harrison Ford could could maybe, while well, he's still alive, uh, film, film a segment where he's Hank Solo. It's like, you know, I, I was his brother. I'm Hank. Um, anyway, Han Solo had his moment for all the predictable reasons. He was too many people, the coolest character in the Star Wars universe until Empire, and then Luke and Vader went and, and hit the lottery. They were the big time. So in comic books, I was thinking the biggest twists, the biggest twists, the biggest plot thickens uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in my time reading comics. And I've shared a couple of them with you before, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to itemize them. I'm going to itemize them. Now, one thing I do know about plot armor, and I, I always cringe, trust me, you're cringing, I'm cringing, but part of my experience, part of my doing this podcast is able to bring my own experience. And I've covered with you on the five-part Deadpool. If you've never heard of the origin of Deadpool, please listen to that. That is when people ask me, hey, can you tell me about Deadpool? I'm like, I'd really just rather you listen to the podcast. It's five hours worth of all the data you'll need about the guy who, I'm, I'm Deadpool's day one, and I share it with you. I'm also Cable's day one, and he actually... Uh, and the success of Cable earned me kind of all the collateral that I got in comics because I gave Cable great plot armor. When I sold Cable and I sold Strife to Marvel Comics, which is what I did, that's what you do. When you are giving something to them, to, to Marvel, as I did in the late the 80s, 1988, 1989 is when I got my first character agreements. And at that time, it was understood you were signing over your rights to the character that you're creating for the company in exchange for a percentage of the company. That's what was happening at that time if you created new characters. Uh, I have a file where all the original forms fill out the other day. And I was like, look at this. I, these are the original, like they, they would send you back a copy of the Manila, you know, it's like Manila paper and uh colored masthead. And there's my signature. And obviously I have plus 30 of the characters that I did on New Mutants and X-Force. But when I introduced Cable and Strife, I knew there was a connection between them. I debated which connection that would be. There was three different items, three different options I had. But I knew in, 19, in, 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 in New Mutants 87, I knew that Cable and Strife would be connected, even if you didn't. 
And even if the person who was technically still holding the title of writer of the book, even though I was told I could start doing my own stories and I'd be writing the book eventually, which thank you, Marvel, that paid off. I think for both of us, thank you for taking that leap with me. But I held a lot, I I held a lot close to the vest because I didn't want anyone else getting, uh, credit for something that I had completely come up with. And, And I think those of you out there who have done this, you understand it in an age where everyone likes to take credit for everything. Holding that special stuff close to your vest matters, and it mattered to me. Uh, I would do the same thing later with with Deadpool, Domino, and Vanessa, and that's the one where I was really pleased that my editor at the time, Bob Harris, would go on to be the editor-in-chief and then be editor-in-chief at DC. Very, very decorated, very successful career. Bob is now retired, but Bob said, Rob, you got us twice, twice in one lifetime. That's a pretty, pretty impressive because I did not tell him until... About six months before, I was going to reveal the big Vanessa Domino twist. And if you don't know that, go read those comics. But that the Domino that you're seeing in New Mutants 98 was not, in fact, the true Domino. This is how she got planted. This was all part of the plant that she followed Deadpool through into a few pages after he was introduced and directly into his plot for a reason, purposely. Now, I've told you before, I was raised on the best soap operas. So I'm just doing all the stuff that I was raised watching Days of Our Lives and General Hospital with my mom. And and what I saw that Chris Chris Claremont was doing so effectively in the X Men because Chris knew how to give people really good plot armor, but I gave Cable plot armor so that by the time that New Mutants 100 rolled around, and trust me, that was a we went back to press three times on New Mutants. It's, it's I've said repeatedly on here, and you can see how excited I get. It's my most excited achievement. We sold a million copies of New Mutants 100. We went back to press three times. It was a double sized book. There is no acetate cover, no no gimmick. No, no foil emboss, no scratch and sniff, no glow in the dark. There's nothing. It's just a comic. It's just a comic. And what moved people was the story and the big twist and the big reveal. That is part of the plot armor. Strife had it. Cable had it. When it was time to reveal that plot armor to you, you, your investment in the character deepened. It deepened. That's why X-Force number one couldn't come faster for so many of you because you wanted to continue the story because we left you on a big, giant, gaping, five-month cliffhanger. And again, that is um, little Robbie Liefeld trying to make the best career he possibly could for himself, following in the footsteps of the people that he loved and he admired, following in Luke, I am your father, following in, and here it is, to me, the best, I'm going to, I'm going to, I guess I'll go backwards, <laughs> so I'll get to the best, but uh, one guy, not surprisingly, is the author of two of these things. Uh, my number five biggest shock reveal and I believe he built the plot armor in to capably fool us. And if you don't have the plot armor on your character, then it's not going to pay off. Uh, Superman, Batman fighting each other in Dark Knight 4. And that setup coming a little earlier was not, it was not something I saw coming. I don't think anybody saw coming. I told you we were raised as kids that Superman and Batman were the best of friends. There was even a book called World's Finest. Ever since I was a kid, when I first, you know, interacted with comic books, that Superman and Batman had a shared feature together. World's finest, Superman and Batman. They'd solve crimes together. They'd battle villains together. It was dedicated monthly, world's finest. Jeff Loeb finally decided in the 2000s to let them revisit that title, except he didn't want the world's finest. He wanted it to be called Superman Batman. And it was, and it was great. Again, playing on the fact that we always saw these characters together. They were on a cartoon that ran five seasons at least, called Super Friends. Not Super Enemies, Super Friends. Hello, Batman. Hello, Superman. Hello, Bruce. Hello, Clark. 
Superman and Batman were the best of buds. Always. They'd never had opposition to each other. Suddenly we get the Dark Knight. Bruce Wayne's coming out of retirement, coming out of his self-imposed exile, battling his old nemesis. We expect that Joker, you know, um, uh, the, 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 the sons of Batman. I mean, what we're getting all of the, the uh, you know, familiar uh, tropes turned on its head by Frank. But the biggest one he turned on the head on on its head, and, I, and I've told you guys about it, is when Clark and Bruce meet together and they're horseback riding. And even by the way that Frank is illustrating Clark, it, it shows like an arrogance, this really kind of like a Fabio before Fabio open like pirate shirt, like open to the mid chest, and these you know puffy ra- ra- racehorse you know jockey pants with the boots and. And he's basically giving a stern warning to Bruce, given that he's now got a new profile amidst this kind of violent series of acts that is going on in the pages of the previous issues of Dark Knight. And I mean, he's revealed this giant Batmobile as a tank in the second issue. He's battled the sons of Batman. Uh, that's what they eventually be called. Uh, that's what they eventually call themselves. But uh, I mean, suddenly. Everything's getting grim and violent, and Batman's at the at, at the center of it. And Clark shows up, and Clark and Bruce are having a moment where Clark threatens Bruce, and Bruce then, to the thrill of all of us, says, "I'd like to see a try." Basically, not word for word, but I'd like to see a try. Like that would be very bad for you if you decided to try and take me down. And then issue four, for those in real time who had never seen this before, and it had never been done. Superman goes on the aggressive against Batman and finds, uh, you know, a very fortified, very capable, very smart Bruce Wayne who has teamed also with Green Arrow, who we who we learned that got his arm ripped off by Superman. One armed Green Arrow has a kryptonite arrow and he shoots it at Bruce, which starts the, you know, the lessening of, um, I'm sorry, he shoots it at Clark, which starts the lessening of Clark's powers, of Superman's powers, which kind of you know, butters him up for the beatdown that uh, that Bruce is going to give him. That was a shock. I was selling comics at the time. I was a clerk at Tustin Tunes and Toys in Tustin. When that book came out, I mean, you want to talk about like like in the recent episode of The Last of Us when when the infected explode from the underground. That's what was happening at the store because Dark Knight Four was a couple months late, and the phone kept ringing. Is Dark Knight in? Is Dark Knight in? Is the conclusion of Dark Knight in? One and two shipped on time. Little lag time on three. A lot of lag time on four. When it finally arrived, everybody rushed. They could not. They couldn't wait to get it, and they could not be more thrilled at the result. And then at the end, there's a twist within the twist. And again, that's even you know these forty year old stories. Now I'm sorry if you haven't read them. Uh, I'm sorry if I'm spoiling them, but you know then supposedly. Batman dies of a heart attack after taking out Superman. But then we learn at the end, that was stage two. Clark is attending a phony funeral for Batman as Batman has gone literally underground with a new gang, with his female Robin, and thus, you know, the promise of adventures that would come later. And they did. Superman versus Batman by Frank Miller in Dark Knight 4, set up in Dark Knight 3, is like one of the biggest twists of my entire comic career i'm gonna go a little more modern but now we're looking at 20 years on this too 19 years um the big omni omni man reveal uh in invincible you got this rookie i've talked about it robert kirkman and this guy Corey walker and then and then and then later on ryan Otley, and they uh they're making the best comic book on the stands you know 
in the uh, in in the freaking early 2000s, and you're like, how is this possible? I never heard of any of these guys. And uh, you know, um, I, I was really between. I've mentioned it between the Authority and Invincible. I, I found like my renewed love of comics that had been leaving me for the longest time. And uh, when you've got this really loving father-son uh, situation that's playing out in every single issue of Invincible, which is kind of like Kirkman's, uh, it's kind of like his his kind of super, super boy, Superman. And uh, relationship except in this case superboy is you know the son of superman and superman is is training him and uh and and you know kind of giving him some tough love some some tough love love over this uh the course of this really well played out really well uh uh illustrated extremely well written um comic book named invincible which had become my favorite comic book and uh, when it happened, I'm going to tell you, I had dropped off my wife to take my little two-year-old son, um, and they were going to see some like kids music act. Well, I had just picked up, I had just picked up the brand new issue of Invincible and I was, uh, reading it in the car because I'm like, when they're done, when, when they're, when they're finished, uh, I will, uh, you know, I'll be right here in, in in the parking lot. I'll have been reading my comics, and and when I say at a musical thing, that's like when, when my wife is going to go sit in like squat position with my two year old son on her lap, and like him going la 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 la. Except it's not the banana splits theme that I just did that, and, and that's an Easter egg within an Easter egg. Okay, um um, but it's like it's it, not a lot of dads are going to that. That's like a, a mom and son thing, and I'm my new invincible. And this this book was riveting to me, and and I'm reading along, and suddenly, what in the hell? Uh, invincible is is a bad guy like like omni-man is 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 the villain of the story what like i mean literally i i could not believe you know that omni-man has been revealed by taking down uh you know all of these superheroes that 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 we had we had been been following and then this sets up this giant battle between him and his son mark and I, I got to be honest, I, I just, I wasn't prepared for it. it. It snowed me. And to this day, I go, man, how'd this guy fool me? How'd this guy, how'd this rookie and his, and his, and his team of rookie buddies, how did they fool me like this? This, this was such a shock. It was an absolute shock. So when Omni-Man is, is revealed not to be the loving father, you know, carefully grooming his, his son, for his as his successor it's like no i'm we my race dominates planets and we're going to dominate and run this one and you're supposed to do it alongside of me mouth on the floor super awesome sets up this epic battle for the ages now it was interesting because i was very curious how long they were going to wait in the cartoon and because i love the, the source material so much i did not ask robert Kirkman to spoil it for me so i experienced the way you guys did and i, lo- I thought it was wonderful that they got right to the reveal so then we as the audience knew, not like in the comics, that was not known in the comics for a good long time. But when it was finally revealed, you know, 
you were like, what? How is this happening? But in the, in, in, the, in the show, you've got too many people, too many of the fan base knows. So they laid it all on the line. Here's the twist. Here's a twist. He takes out everybody in the first. You see he's a villain. You see he's a bad guy. So now we, as the audience, are going to go along with Mark and everybody and go along with him realizing it. We're, we're going to be with him as he realizes what now we already know. Both takes on the Omni-Man reveal are brilliant, and it makes it makes my list at number four. And uh, and for those keeping track at home, it's, it's Invincible issue number seven when he kills uh the guardians of the globe and we we the audience know he's a villain and i'm telling you those pages that sequence as written by robert kirkman as illustrated by cory walker are spectacular and it was like what like and and suddenly that mustache looks a lot more like a hitler mustache than it did before you're like ah it's a j jonah jameson mustache and then you're like oh sh- shit it, it, he, he now embodies in that last splash page he he looks very hitler-esque and then of course mark would realize it it would play out the rest of the year and in a few issues they would be battling for mark's soul in a vicious battle that is every bit as violent as the one that you see in the cartoon so invincible's omni-man reveal is in uh invincible seven i can't imagine how much that comic is going for now I, i'm so thankful that i bought these comics off the shelf at mile high comics in uh in, in Garden Grove on Harbor Boulevard back when they were coming out. But yeah, Omni-Man, number four. And it earned it because the plot armor was there. We believed that he loved Mark. We believed that he was invested in making Mark's life better. And then, dun-dun-dun, the plot thickened. The twist occurred. The plot armor was was revealed. My number three biggest twist ever in the history of comics. And I, I believe these are substantial. These are all super duper. I'm, I'm going to tell you. I sent a list out to a friend of mine. I, I asked actually a number of my friends prior to doing this show who are all maybe eight to 10 years younger than me. So born in, in 1980, born in, you know, uh, just I, I'm born in 1967. So I, that's why I'm an old 55 year old, but guys who are just now in their forties and they asked, they told me, now here's the deal. A couple of them, they were telegraphed. They were part of the sales of the actual comic. And we're going to get to that in a minute, how stories are what we need to get back to driving comic books. They're driving the stuff that we love on television and the stuff that we love in movies, but it's now almost too much is given away in the marketing. And then it's this reliance, over-reliance on covers. Um, But the bottom line, story drove the Superman, Batman reveal. Story drove the Luke, Darth Vader reveal. Story drove the Invincible Omni-Man. You didn't see it coming. It wasn't advertised. It wasn't part of an event. It wasn't something that you could draw your own logical conclusion. And the next one is one of the biggest. And it happened in the pages of Watchmen. And it was, you know, who, you know, from who's watching the Watchmen to who killed the Watchmen. These are the big mysteries that, that, that the book was sold on. It's a murder mystery from the, from the start, you know? And we go on this journey. And at one point we are in Rorschach's, you know, rain jacket and his and his hat. And we are him. We are trying to put together the pieces. We are following the clues. Alan Moore knew exactly who needed the most plot armor in Watchmen. And he gave it to Ozymandias. Because I was shocked at Ozymandias' reveal. Because he did that cool thing where somebody tries to kill him too. And he defends him. And you're like, wait, what's going on here? And, and, and again, the plot thickened. The twists were forthcoming. 
when it was finally revealed that the person killing the watchman was one of their own. And now you go, well, we all knew that. No, you didn't. Not in 1986. You most certainly did not. You were month in, month out waiting for those to come out. This isn't binging. All the Watchmen weren't revealed in one week on Netflix and we didn't buzz through them from Friday morning to Sunday morning. This is a 12-month, again, Watchmen shipped late towards the end. The, the, books, um, the books took longer, which is fine because now it's existed, again, just like Dark Knight. It's existed as one thing forever, forever. The uh, Ozymandias reveal and his entire agenda of disarming the world's superpowers and uniting them. A twist, I think, which was, and I've, I've gone on record here on my Zack Snyder episodes, I think it was done better in the movie. I do. I think it's the one thing that the movie did better. I think the, the movie's uh, handling of it, making Dr. Manhattan the bad guy, was an even better twist. But the, you know, taking the Watchmen out and then setting the stage and then having them battle, having them get to uh, Ozymandias' fortress and battle him. And Ozymandias like, would I really tell you everything that was going to go down if it didn't already go down while you've been here? All this happened. It was mind blow after mind blow after mind blow. It is Alan Moore's masterpiece for a reason. He figured it out. The Ozymandias reveal in Watchmen, all of the relationships that we became involved with, everything that we invested was a grand payoff. No one thinks the Watchmen didn't deliver. It was spectacular. And again, that is coming out the same time that I'm buying these comics. So, And look, that has nothing to do with whether they're successful. I am still a comic fan. I was on the other side. I'm not in comics yet. I think things do change, which is why Omni-Man is so impressive. I need to put that, tag that back on number four. I'm in the business for 20 plus years when I'm reading Invincible. And it, and it shocked me, surprised me, blew me away. And I'm like, I, I'm supposed to see this stuff coming. I'm better than this. I'm not. The 18-year-old kid working the register at the comic book store who's still scrounging up money to buy my own comic books, you know, trying to get enough wages and, and set aside enough, you know. I'm different than credit card carrying, you know, uh, uh, in the business guy. So Omni-Man, super impressive. Ozymandias, the Watchmen reveal, genius, brilliant, took everybody by storm, didn't see it coming. It was the ultimate whodunit payoff. Loved it. Loved it. The plot armor paid off. It was an investment that that we all felt because it, it, it had been so carefully crafted. Very well crafted armor. The Death of Phoenix is my number two, and it's it and it's there for a reason. Because no one saw it coming because it wasn't supposed to happen. And if and, and again we go behind the scenes and it was the editor-in-chief at the time who said, you can't have your character, Phoenix, who had become like a Galactus-level power. Trust me, if you were reading X-Men in and out, month in, month out, as, as so many of us were, as that book rose to from the cellar to the penthouse and went all the way to the number one, Phoenix was this next-level power. Like, she had godlike power. She, she, it, we saw it coming before the burn issues uh, when she battled Fire Lord. I want to say... I want to say X-Men 105, but don't, don't hold me to it. Dave Cockrum cover. Um, I mean, Phoenix was next level cosmic powers. So when she kind of wanders off and does these super powerful things, we, we were accepting of it, but then she destroyed a planet, killed, killed an entire race. I mean, I mean, killed an entire race of people. Maybe not engulfed a planet in the same way that 
that the Death Star would eliminate one or Galactus did, but she had become this giant, powerful, and now murderous cosmic entity. And and Jim Shooter said, you can't have her live. Give, giving her a lobotomy and letting her go back to you know uh, Westchester and be at the school with the rest of the mutants, that's not going to fly. She has to have a penalty. And so they had to redraw, restructure, re, you know, do the original outcome of that story. And it delivered an all-time classic. And I've told you guys, it's it's the, the, these last two are the two times that little Robbie Liefeld was verklempt, felt blue, depressed, and in, and in fact, cried with, with number one. Didn't cry here. Sad, shocked, a little pissed at the death of Phoenix. Thought it was really classy. Well done when she basically takes her own life, raises the gun with her, the, the, the gun that's hidden on the moon fortress and, and, and annihilates herself in front of her lover, in front of, you know, I mean, they've been together since X-Men number one, since Scott and Jean, you know, were introduced side by side. This was a forever relationship. And, and again, as I've mentioned during this period of time, from like 19, mid-1970s through the 80s, Marvel was putting out reprints rapidly to capitalize. They had, a, they had a dedicated Spider-Man reprint title that was coming out at the same time, sometimes with new covers. For Avengers, Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, the X-Men, they all, Hulk, all had individual, um, Captain America ha- had one as well. Marvel Super Action, Marvel Triple Action, Marvel Tales. Uh, Mar- World's Greatest Comics, th- these were the titles of the Fantastic Four reprints, the Avengers reprints, the Captain America reprints, the Spider-Man reprints. They redubbed Amazing Adventures for uh, for the X-Men. I believe that's what it was called, but it was, and, and then they started giving us John Byrne covers. Are you kidding me? They were giving us John Byrne. So John Byrne is drawing the current super hot, uh, beloved, uh, uh, you know, coveted X-Men book, and then they put him on covers of the reprint book that gave you the Stan and Jack classic. So of course we're buying it. Brilliant marketing. Kudos to Marvel in the 80s for having me even more excited to buy reprints. And then I would consume those same Stan and Jack stories. I, you know, bought the very first reprint that came out because the X-Men was so hot. And I was now walking alongside history and 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 realizing that even Professor X had had an eye for Jean Grey. Everybody loved them some Jean Grey. So to have her die. As a result of this murderous act that her dark version, you know, Dark Phoenix was then, you know, later explained away. I've done that. That's in the Birth of X Factor. That's an episode I did about a year ago. You should listen to that because that's the controversy behind undoing the death and bringing Jean Grey back, which to this day, eh, you know, uh, to me, she died. And, and, and I kind of feel like she's still dead. And I'm not sure what, I, what to make of the rest, even though they tell me that's Jean. But the bottom line, that's how powerful and how moving and how epic and how amazing and and my, my buddy Marat, you guys know Marat Michaels, he was here the other day and we were just fawning over the X-Men art. And again, the John Byrne, Terry Austin duo is still in my eyes, unchallenged in comics and Terry Austin's inking techniques are like from the 22nd century, the, the, the lines and the patterns and the way that he finished pages with his array of tools, many of which he wouldn't tell you. He will not tell you how he got, he would... Um, uh, some people were, were some of his friends in the business bore witness to this, but they didn't know how he did it. He clipped his nibs, the the croquil nibs. I've used all sorts of nibs, uh, little fountain pen nibs, which is which is uh, you know what was really the go to before the, the, this age of super flexible tip markers did not exist when I broke into comics. And all of your great inkers used brush and nib, brush and nib, some exclusively brush. Uh, but whether it was a Hunt 102, a 107, a 108, but Terry modified 
so that he'd get unique looks for himself. So the artwork in those issues, the story, the Dark Phoenix Saga and and X-Men 137 is an epic, a classic for its reason, and they had built it. Look, they may have been, you know, it may have been by a decree of their boss, the editor-in-chief, that you've got to kill her. They handled it in a way that the reader, I didn't know that until way later, until the fan magazines started printing all these interviews with Chris Claremont and Jim Shooter and John Byrne talking about the controversy behind killing Dark Phoenix. Well, it was controversial. We didn't see it coming. The plot armor worked. And that plot armor, to be honest, goes all the way back to X-Men number one. That relationship, this this relationship with Scott and Gene, and then it complicated itself when Wolverine was introduced because Wolverine openly had the hots for Gene would talk about I have the I have the hots for Gene. I want Gene. I want to get Scott out of the picture. She she again and, and there are early issues of the X-Men where Xavier, it's controversial, but it's back in the stand and Jackie's like, I kind of, you know, I I have a heart for Gene as well. I mean, again, she was so beloved by the family. And then to have gone evil and then to take her own life, that was as earned as you can possibly earn, except for number one, which earned it in the most spectacular fashion. Imagine your favorite new character, whoever that was, and then realizing that two years into that character, that character was built to die. That character was built to die. That writer had invested in you loving that character so much that that you would feel it when the ultimate sacrifice for that character came. And that is, in a nutshell, the story of Elektra. Frank Miller took over Daredevil as the artist and quickly, I think Jim Shooter saw the genius um, in in a really, really, really long time and uh, took over as the the writer and artist of Daredevil. And I've talked to you, another from the cellar to the penthouse became, under him, became the number one selling book, outselling the X-Men at the peak of Frank Miller mania on Daredevil. Well, he did it on the back of this character named Elektra, who he introduces in his first issue, writing and drawing. He had been drawing the book. And trust me, he was the poster child for my entire generation. Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, Wills Portacio, Eric Larson, myself of, oh, you can earn your way onto writing and drawing the book, just like I did with New Mutants and X-Force, and which I would then later do, you know, for basically the rest of my career. Frank Miller was the guy. He was drawing. Daredevil, it was bi-monthly. Suddenly, there was, the writer had gone. He was now the writer and the artist. And we get this origin of this Electra. I think her last name is Nachos. And her romance with Matthew Murdoch was revealed from their college days. And now she's re-emerged in his life. But she's this badass assassin. Um, her, her, her father was an ambassador from Greece. And again, she had a bodyguard that walked around with her on campus. It was a really great back backstory where frank revealed their young love and then you know matt's heart was ripped out when she left just as fast as she had he had met her i mean again read these stories yourself but then now he's back in her life and she's a deadly assassin and 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 he's crossing her as daredevil and then of course realizing who they both are and the danger that electra represents to everything that matt stands for and this and their romance is rekindled and they become mad lovers again and then they're united against the hand and this evil, like ninja mystical forces that are corrupting New York City. And then Kingpin gets involved, who has suddenly become 
a bigger character in the pages of Daredevil than he ever was in Spider-Man. And he hires Darede- uh, Bull- Bullseye. He hires Bullseye, who has already been depicted as by Frank in individual issues as like the most deadly nemesis that could ever possibly cross Daredevil, possibly more dangerous than Daredevil. It was always depicted that Daredevil just got out of being murdered by Bullseye by the skin of his teeth, by uh, by just just edging him like like Rocky Drago in in in, in Rocky form. I mean, it's it, it it came down to like the final blow. So now Bullseye has been enacted to uh, really get to Matt, and by doing so, kill the people close to him. He discovers the relationship between Elektra and Daredevil, and we got Daredevil 181, double-sized. I've told you my mom went into the Buena Park Mall after I went to the comic store. I got my comics with my own hard-earned lawn mowing money. I didn't want to go into the mall. We parked outside of a, 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 a department store that no longer exists called the May Company in the uh, Buena Park Mall. She went inside. I stayed in the car to read my comic books. I read Daredevil in the back seat of the car and cried. I could not believe she is skewered. I mean, he when Frank kills Elektra, it is violent. It is brutal. She had become almost a bigger star in the book than Daredevil. Really, the the the... the most comparative part of this is after having introduced Wolverine and having Wolverine rocket to popularity in the pages of the X-Men and become everyone's favorite to kill Wolverine. She was the female Wolverine. She was everybody's like top two, top three character in comic books, and she'd only been around for two years. But he had built her plot armor, the likes of which I had never seen prior or since. She was such a great, rich character. Her conflicted, you know, feelings for Matt Murdock, the the viciousness that she had inside, the 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 ultimate killer that that she had become was scary to us, the reader, because it's like, whoa, Electra is can be a cold, as cold blooded assassin as you could possibly imagine, and then to have her just he sticks her like a pig. I mean, Bullseye, it is so graphic. And then to have her crawl back to Matt's apartment, bleeding out and die in his arms was, wait, what? And then, of course, the issue ends with Daredevil in, you know, ears fully pinned back in full pitbull mode. He's going to go and he's going to find Bullseye and he's going to kill Bullseye. And then there's that moment that he has to make that choice. And I'm not sure that dropping him from as high up uh, wasn't kind of a choice to murder, but it was it was dark. It, it, it took our character to to his darkest place. Electra is the number one uh, plot twist that I have ever experienced in comic books. No one saw it coming. It was not advertised. We had she had become so familiar and so much part of the cast. I mean, it could have been called in the seventies. The book was called Daredevil and Black Widow when she, you know, co-starred alongside of him. It became like a shared space, Daredevil and Black Widow, because she had become almost a, a sidekick. Captain America was renamed Captain America and the Falcon for a great period of time because the falcon was now like a a, a complimentary character she was more so than black widow or falcon ever were to daredevil or in the or captain america in those respective titles we loved her we aspired to see more electra stories the last thing we saw that she she was going to get snuffed out now i can tag on to this a year later he brings her back the resurrection of electra i did not see that coming again uh he does the double twist Frank Miller is the king. He has he occupies five and one on this list. Number one and number five. Plot armor, it works. 
I've been there. Um, I have been blessed. I'm going to tell you this. It's because it's the greatest compliment I've ever been given. Both Robert Kirkman, Mr. Om- Omni-Man, uh, number four on my list, and Mr. Jeff Johns of Blackest Night, of, of, of Green Lantern, of Flash, of like super hot, hottest DC writer of the last 20 years. They both told me at separate points, and it made me feel old and I enjoyed it. They said when Strife revealed himself to be an older version of Cable in New Mutants 100, he goes, I, I, I dropped the comic. My, my jaw hit the floor. It inspired me. Robert Kirkman uh, has told me that the Omni-Man revealed, he discussed with Jim Valentino, who was the publisher of Image at the time, that he wanted to have, to have something with, with that much impact. Well, I, I will tell you, in my opinion, you had more. Um, it had more impact. This rookie, he fooled, fooled me. These, these guys, they were so young to pull this off. They were so, it was a super impressive feat. But again, I invested in plot armor. I know the resonance that it can, it, it, it can create. I'm not trying to make you cringe, but the, the cable strife, uh, I felt like I earned that because you didn't see it coming for 13 issues. And when you did, I, you didn't live with the characters as long as Electra, but Cable's popularity blew up. He was super, um, you know, uh, popular. And the, and the fact that they had battled twice before, he and Strife had, had come to blows twice before, and now you're realizing, oh my gosh. And by the time, prior to the Wolverine issues where Strife and Cable are battling, and I was really writing a lot of that myself, and especially doing the choreography, because I, I know you're going to ask this. So by, by issues 93 and 94, yes, I absolutely knew then by then exactly who Strife was, and I wasn't going to tell anybody. I wouldn't tell anybody until they saw the pages in Marvel. My, I didn't tell my editor until he got the last pages of New Mutants 100. And, and he's like, did you know this all along? I said, I, I've known it for a year. And so uh, plot armor, it pays off. Death of Electra number one, Death of Phoenix number two, Ozymandias reveal number three, Omni Man reveal in, 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 in Invincible number four, Superman, Batman, the former world's finest, having a sour moment or two or ten in Dark Knight number four is my number five. Plot armor works. Plot twists work. Maybe yours is, as my friend said, it's the Thunderbolts, except the Thunderbolts, the fact that they were v- villains disguised as heroes was part of the selling, was, was part of the selling point. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I tell you, it's just crazy. Um, bottom line, plot twists are story points and story points used to be what moved comics. And I'll end with this. And this is ominous, ominous, ominous. I was with Marat Michaels. I took him to the comic store that I'm frequenting. I had, I had never brought Marat with me to this store prior to me bringing him this, this last visit. So Marat and I are at the store and we're talking to the managers that he's never met before. And I, I said to him, you know, what's moving in comics? It's my go-to question. And he says, ah, it's kind of slow. You know, again, back issues are doing great. That, that, that's what's really, you know, helping us out. But I said, so, so there's nothing moving in comics? And he says, no, I, I, I wish there was. I said, okay, when was the last time that there was a story-driven moment, that, that something was being driven via story? in your story that people were showing up going, I have to get this because I heard it's great. I heard it's a great story. Death of Electra, Death of Phoenix, Ozymandias, The Whole Watchman, Betrayal, uh, Omni-Man, Invincible, Dark Knight. These are story-driven books. They were driven by story. His answer, he gave me one. He said, let me count. Uh, okay, I think it was. Yeah, he said, I've got an answer. The last time that we were moving comics because of a story was the last Ronin, the first issue. And let me tell you something. I gave the last Ronin the Macho Award. The twenty. 20- 
22 Macho Award in my podcast a year ago I gave to The Last Ronin because Kevin Eastman was returned to form 100% completely rejuvenated. The Turtles were around. They were doing okay. Now the Turtles are blowing up. And you know what happened? A story happened. A story broke out. A story that everyone liked. New possibilities. New relationships. Wait for it. New twists. New turns. The plot armor was back in full effect and Kevin had it. And he and his team pulled it off magnificently. And I said, so you're telling me two years ago. And he said, it was two years ago? Yeah, yeah, it was two years ago. That would, Yep, two years ago, man. Two years ago was the last time people rushed our store because of story. That's no judgment. That's just the world we live in. And it's the challenge to each and every one of us that makes comics to try harder and to get people more excited about the stories that we're telling. And that's something maybe you can formulate with your editor, with your, uh, with your creative team, and you huddle in advance and work it out because we all have the best intentions. Everybody wants to move that needle the way Kevin Eastman moved that needle on The Last Ronin, and, and he most assuredly moved that needle. There's Last Ronin toys. The, 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 trade, the trades of Last Ronin keep selling out. The hardcover sold out. I had to wait to get, to get my copy. They had to wait on back order. When something is, is hard to get, it's in demand, right? The last Ronin was the last time a story was driving people to the stores, according to my great uh, retailers that I frequent in Fullerton. And again, Marat was right there, and it was something he and I talked about on our entire drive home. But the biggest twists, the biggest plot reveals, and the ultimate dominance and flex of the plot armor are in these uh, these books that I've shared with you uh, today. And you know what? Your yours are going to change. You're going to maybe be different than your different age. You're younger. Maybe it's when uh, Spider-Man revealed that he was Peter Parker to the world in civil war, except again, that was, that was part of the advertising. That was kind of part of the, they, they had already put that out there. I mean, back in, in the day and in what happens in shows that we love, they protect those secrets. Those, those, those secrets are protected. Those movies, they protect that like they did. They didn't even have you know, Luke, you are my father spoken on set. Nobody who was filming it that day knew it. So it was a complete su- surprise. Uh, plot armor. It works. And I, I had a blast. I had a blast sharing, sharing this list again. You know, you guys can go ahead on all the different social media outlets and, and share your twists with me. Now, uh, I'm going to tell you in a minute how you can do that. Cause I'm all over this, all over social media as, as, uh, as you know, uh, and each and every week, I am so excited to uh, share with you guys the different reviews that you are, um, you know, sharing with me, which just humbles me to no end. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we, we keep getting some, some really fun ones. And uh, <laughs> I, think I, I think I shared the, 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 uh, the really... Um, the really, the really quick one I shared with you guys uh, last week, and uh, you know what? Um, I'm not sure. It, 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 uh, you know when I when I have uh, shared this one before, so I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and and give you yet another review that you guys leave for me that are that is so uh, it, it's so generous. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate the fact that you guys leave these, sharing these reviews, uh, which help bolster our appearance on the platforms. 
and give us a higher profile. And as you guys know, this, this show is free. It's, there's no monetization of this show whatsoever. The show is uh, made for free. Well, I, I, I produce the show. I, I, I have some guys I've hired to help me um, assemble it, make it sound good, load it up. Uh, when, when, uh, and, and my new team, I want to give a shout out. Oh my gosh, how has it taken me this long to give a shout out to Reed and James for all the ways that they've been hooking me up since October? When we uh, took took control of this show, and and I'm just so thankful for Reed and James. Thank you guys for all that you have done. We are able to get a higher profile and reach more people, mainly with your word of mouth. These reviews absolutely help, and that is why I read them uh, at the end of each and every show. So, so here is our review for this week. I am so happy to share it. It is from Royals Fanatic. He emphatically says... Rob is a word salad chef with a lot to say. Hey, I'll take it where I can get it. I'm a word salad chef with a lot to say. Well, I'm just I'm just thankful that Royals Fanatic and the rest of you are here to listen to what I have to say. I hope today the plot armor stuff resonates. Uh, not really a call to arms, but um, bump, uh, you know, do my drum beat right here. A call to arms, armor. Okay. Yeah, it's not very punny. Okay, sorry, guys. But uh, as as always, I thank you so much for listening to the show. Thanks for taking this ride along with me. Where you can find me on social media and we can talk about plot armor and all that other stuff is I am on Twitter at Robert Liefeld. Full name, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. Robert Liefeld at Robert Liefeld on Twitter. I am on Instagram at just Rob Liefeld. Rob Liefeld just on Instagram. R-O-B-L-I-E-F-E-L-D at Rob Liefeld. Now, both of those is where you can reach me. I talk to you guys, hear your comments, your um, your your interactions, your messages, your DMs. I, I get all of them. I try and respond. Thank you for following me at Robert Liefeld on Twitter, at Instagram, uh, at Robert Liefeld on Instagram. I'm sorry, at Rob Liefeld on Instagram. Wow, I'm even confused. Thank you for following me on social media. I appreciate it so much, so, so very much. On Facebook, I have a group. It's called Rob Liefeld, Marvel, Extreme, and Beyond. We have a great group. It's growing by leaps and bounds, new faces all the time. Myself or a gentleman named Terry Sala, S-A-L-A. I love to spell it for you. Um, not Terry Salad, Terry Sala. Uh, we click in. We're the administrators. That's how you know you're in the right place. But there's a whole bunch of uh, fun going on at the Rob Liefeld Marvel Extreme and Beyond group. I hope you find it on Facebook. Uh, click it through. We'll click, click, click to join. We'll get you through, and 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 we'll be talking to you at greater length. The discussions are a little longer and more in depth over there. I'm on an app called Whatnot. It's a really great collectible app. You can buy collectible card games, uh, trading cards, sports cards, Funko Pops, toys, comic books. Uh, sports memorabilia. I am in the comic book toys and Funko uh, kind of corner of whatnot. And I am Rob Liefeld. Follow me over there. You'll get notifications when my sales go live. I have done exclusive whatnot covers that you can only find on my whatnot shows. I did a Amazing Spider-Man, a Deadpool, New Mutants, and a uh, Brigade, uh, different variations. I'm, and each one has a different variation. So it's all, all total, I think it's about 10 different whatnot exclusives that I only are only available through me on the live stream. I am on the live stream. I am generally sitting on my very comfy beanbag, looking right at you, talking to you for two to three hours tops. No, what am I saying? Two to three hours minimum, four hours tops. It goes long sometimes. Some people say it's an extension of this podcast. Uh, I'm just keeping it real. See me, uh, follow me on whatnot, and and I have signed custom comics, toys, Funko Pops, Remarks, 
prints and original art, and it would be great to see you over there during one of my shows. I hope that you are feeding your emotional self, your spiritual self, your physical self, and your mental self. I, I am as concerned about all of us as I am about my own family. Hope you guys are getting through it one day at a time. Life is a grind, uh, especially as you get older. You have kids. There's always some, some new challenge, uh, whether it's at work, family, relationships, whatever. I feel you. I've been there. I've done that. I'm doing it. I highly recommend grabbing some time, reading a comic book, reading your favorite sci-fi fantasy novel, watching a great movie. Fantasy movie, sci-fi movie, sword and sorcery, superhero, something on streaming. You know, have a great cheat meal to go with it. Relax. Take in all the stuff that stimulates us so that we can get through the crazy crap that we have to deal with each and every week. That is my wish for you. Thank you, as always, for joining me. I will be here waiting to uh, chat with you again. Swing on by. We are most certainly, absolutely, inevitably going to talk again real soon.